Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa on 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. My name is Kobediwa Namani. I'm your host this morning. With me driving the show is Anne Musa Wissanima Tebola and Tamin Kuza. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Our top story is this, our Kenyan military battle militants inside a mall in Nairobi. World leaders gather at United Nations in New York and Ethiopia slashes child mortality rates by half. In our economics news, West Africa bourses nine companies may list next year. And in sports, Al-Akhi of Egypt and the Land of Pirates of South Africa qualify for the semifinals of the Champions League. But first, it's time for the news. Here's Anne. Good morning. Three loud explosions have been heard at Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, where Kenyan security forces are battling to end a 43-hour-long standoff with militants. The explosions followed a sustained outbreak of gunfire that lasted around 15 minutes. The Kenyan military says it's, control of, it's in control of most of the complex. At least 68 people are known to have been killed in the attack by militants from the Somali Al-Shabaab group. According to reports, the dead also include three British nationals, two French women, two Canadian citizens, including a diplomat, a Chinese woman, two Indians, a Ghanaian poet, a South Korean, and a Dutch woman, as well as a South African. The African Union has strongly condemned the terrorist attack in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, against innocent civilians. The AU has stressed the need to renew and reinforce efforts to fight against terrorism. It has expressed solidarity with the Kenyan government and people, reaffirmed its determination to intensify efforts in fighting against terrorism and pursue the action in order to guarantee stability in Somalia and fight against against Al-Shabaab through its mission in Somalia. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon have also strongly condemned the attack at a shopping mall in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. The Somali Al-Shabaab Islamist group has claimed responsibility for the attack at the Westgate Mall, in which gunmen killed at least 68 people and wounded more than 200. Ban says this is a time of shock for all Kenyans and all, including the UN family who are proud to call Nairobi home. I condemn in the strongest of terms yesterday's terrorist attacks at Nairobi's Westgate Mall. This premeditated act targeting defenseless civilians is a totally reprehensible. The perpetrators must be brought to justice as soon as possible. Scores have been killed and wounded. I express my condolences to families of the diseased and injured and to the loved ones of all those of other nationalities who are among the victims. 
The death toll from an attack in Bono State in Nigeria has risen to at least 142. Officials say they have recovered bodies lying on the road and in nearby bushes in the Benishik area of Bono State. The previous toll from the attack was 87. The insurgents suspected to be from Islamist group Boko Haram. Dressed as soldiers set up checkpoints on the road between Maiduguri and Amaturu and shot people who were travelling on the road. Residents say the attackers singled out people from Borno while letting people from other regions pass through checkpoints. South Africa says the UN should follow its own rules when deciding on whether to allow Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir to address the UN General Assembly this week. Al-Bashir, who has been indicted by the International Criminal Court, has applied for a visa to visit New York, setting the proverbial cat amongst the diplomatic pigeons. With human rights groups and various governments outraged at the prospect of al-Bashir coming to the UN after the Security Council initially referred him to the ICC. South African International Relations Minister Maitin Kwana Mashibane. There are many other presidents who, who are coming to the UN because this is supposed to be a neutral ground. So we are a rule-based organization. Unless there are very clear terms that says you can't come here and we are quoting this statute, this rule, this chapter of the UN. So that's it. We mustn't, we mustn't follow that which is not in the chapter. It remains unclear whether the U.S. government has granted a visa or not, while the U.N. says the matter is entirely for the host government, although the Secretary-General has called for President Omar al-Bashir to cooperate fully with the RCC. And that's the news for this hour. And on to our stories for this hour. The death toll in Kenya's attack now stands at 68 after nine more bodies were recovered from the mall. Kenya's President Uru Kenyatta says the masterminds of Saturday's terror attack in Kenya will get a painful and swift punishment. Kenyatta says investigations were on to determine if indeed the Al-Shabaab were involved in these attacks. Kenyatta, however, says Kenya will not leave Somalia where the Kenya Defense Force are in pursuit of the Al-Shabaab fighters whom they blame for several terror attacks inside Kenya. Here's a report by Sarah Kimani. Loud gunfire and explosions could be heard inside the building where 10 to 15 attackers were still holed up more than 32 hours after they stormed the mall armed with guns and grenades. Kenya's president Uhuru Kenyatta issuing an update on the attackers promising to act swiftly. They shall not get away with their despicable and beastly acts like the cowardly perpetrators now cornered in the building, we will punish the masterminds swiftly and indeed very painfully. I call on Kenyans to stand courageous and united. Let us not sacrifice our values and dignity to appease cowards. Our victory must be conclusive. Let us defeat them with our unity. On reports that Al-Shabaab had taken control of the mall, Kenyatta sounded defiant in the face of the tragedy. We went as a nation into Somalia to help stabilize the country, but most importantly, to fight the war against terror. Terror that had been unleashed on Kenyan people, on the Somali people, and people everywhere in this world. I want to be very clear and categorical. We shall not relent on the war on terror.
we will continue that fight and we urge all people of goodwill throughout the world to join us and to ensure that we uproot this evil. So if their thought is that this was to intimidate us, it has only increased our commitment to fight and win this war. And uh, that was Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta ending that report by Sarah Kimani in Nairobi. The Kenyan government says that security forces were in control of most of the Nairobi shopping mall where at least 68 people were killed by Somali al-Shabaab militants. But gunmen still appear to be holding hostages. Now for an update from the Westgate Shopping Center, our correspondent Mwai Kikonyo joins us on the line for the second time this morning. Good morning Mwai and uh, welcome to Channel Africa. Good morning again to you. Thank you. We were told that there were fresh shootings um, recently. What is the latest on the ground? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? In fact, uh, as we were talking earlier, uh, there was a small explosion uh, from inside the building. And uh, we journalists were not allowed to go inside the building, the Westgate building, or even to come nearer. So we are standing about uh, 200 meters uh, from the building. In fact, uh, early in the morning, police had to use the tear gas uh, to disperse the sudden crowd because some of the people are coming here looking for their loved ones. Because since Saturday, when the attack occurred, some of the people are still missing. In fact, uh, some of the family members and relatives they have been visiting visit, uh, the hospitals and also mortuaries without uh, any success. So a lot of people are still coming in here try to find their loved ones, try to go inside. As we are talking right now, the military is inside the building and has been joined by the Israeli uh, security agents uh, trying to flush out uh, some of the attackers. And uh, according to the statement we received uh, a few minutes ago, we understand that there are about 10 to 15 assailants who are still hiding inside. And we do understand that they are inside a room that has got uh, bulletproof doors and windows. So the situation is you change, but uh, we understand that uh, the, the military security officials, they are trying to take precautions. They're very, very careful because they want to uh, rescue some of the remaining hostages into the building. They are very safe and uh, they don't want to be harmed or to be killed. That's why the, the, the station is taking a very, very long time and they're very, very careful. And as we're talking right now, I can see some uh, two police um, uh, choppers that are flying very, very low at the Westgate building. So as we're talking right now, uh, nobody actually knows what is going inside. The military is inside. Security against Kenyans and Israelis are still inside. We are not allowed to go inside the building or even to come near the building. And I understand the, the distance that's being kept away uh, from the mall by security forces, but would you say the military is in control of the situation? Why? Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. In fact, uh, everything is under control. The government is in full control right now. But, but, but you see, what, what is happening inside, nobody knows. We don't know how many bodies are still leaked all over the building. We don't know how many people are still held inside, the hostages held inside. So the situation is still uncertain. 
we don't know what is taking place inside because nobody is allowed to go inside. There was a small explosion early this morning, and um, we do believe that uh, despite the announcement that uh, the death toll has risen to 68 and more than 200 injured, we do believe that by late in the day, the death toll is likely and probably is going to rise, definitely is going to rise, because we don't know how many people are still lying dead into the building and uh, take the condition, the health condition of the hostages. So right now, we're just waiting, waiting and searching. We don't know what is taking place. Mm, it's certainly a, a game of wait and see. Tell me something. Have the authorities managed to free any hostages today? Yeah, in fact, uh, in fact, last night, in fact, last night, we saw some. Uh, I think, I think, I saw, I saw a lady, a young lady, who was being taken from his building. But I couldn't see her because she, some of these hostages, you know, they've been in the building for the last almost now. Today, today is a bad day. They're very, very weak. And they're being taken to various hospitals nearby. There are about four to five hospitals, you know, you know Polish hospitals, which are Polish hospitals, which are around the, the, the building. So, so whether we're going to find them alive or not, we don't know. And that was our correspondent in Kenya, Mwai Gikonya, on the line from Westgate Shopping Centre in the capital, Nairobi. Mwai, thanks a lot for your time and keep safe. Welcome. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Still on uh, the uh, shooting at Westgate Mall, the dramatic Al-Shabaab attack on uh, the popular mall in Nairobi has prompted military experts to express fear of the resurgence of the Somali militants. Captain Simiyu Warunga is a renowned Kenyan expert on terrorism. James Jumanula spoke to retired Army Captain Warunga on the emergence of terrorism in East Africa nearly two years after the Kenya Defense Force dislodged Al-Shabaab from Somalia. Terrorists you can stop them completely, but you just make their work very difficult so that if they were to do 20, they do half. I think that's one thing we need to understand because you can never, terrorism has never been defeated 100% in the, in the history of the world. But as a government, even after several attacks, we've not seen a concerted government effort to bring in the Kenyan people to work with them against terrorism. Every time they come up, it is the government versus Kenyans. So the moment they start working with Kenyans and people buy into this idea that this is our problem, it is not a government problem, we should be able to make sure that government organs... Captain, looking at uh, the government's intelligence agency, do you yes. think they may have been uh, a step backward and the terrorists were maybe a step ahead? And uh, if so, do you think uh, Al Jazeera seemed to have known that uh, as we gather that there was going to be an attack? What's going on with the intelligence section? If Al Jazeera knew, our intelligence knew. The other issue that I've been having with our people here, our government, is that we seem to be having a problem of coordination. There's no central authority that must make sure that the implementing agency does or uses the information they've been given. My beef with this kind of arrangement is such that every one of those leaders wants to approach 
the head of state as individuals. We have the National Security Council, but that's not where people are briefed about national intelligence. The president is briefed as an individual, and they get most of this information. I mean, they give, they give this president the information as individuals. You see, somebody leaves the office, goes to the president, briefs him, they leave. So what do we need as a second measure is to have a centralized national security office that will be getting all this information, cut it into key, and give the president what he needs to know. And by doing that, the president will be giving instructions from a very informed perspective and allocating responsibilities in accordance with the intelligence to all government security organs. That's what, what needs to be done. What do you think could have happened given that uh, before before you enter supermarket, we have these uh, guards that search you or check you. What could have gone wrong? And we have even CCTV. I mean, what could have gone wrong to the extent that um, these terrorists came and just passed the security and uh, as if they were just coming to relax? Are they bred here in Kenya? It's a known fact that we have several cells in this country, both in Nairobi and in Mumbai, and I know, and the terrorism unit and the intelligence community have been working on this one. I need to correct you. What happened when these people arrived, moved closer to the mall, they shot the guards. So the, the guards did not have the capacity to check what they were carrying, and they did the same from the other entrance. So it became very difficult for, for even those who are inside. After they saw the grenade being held at everybody, their colleagues had been shot outside and invite one of their leaders or the person to be shot. So that one, of course, destabilized the whole security system in terms of money. Now, what we need to know after this is how the CCTV provided the information and which hopefully the government will use to trace the fellows that were part and parcel of this. Do you think that is the end of uh, Al-Shabaab? I may ask you that question. Or this was just a semblance of an attempt or an attempt of we still have them still hunting for us given that uh, they government, the president himself, says that we are going to get them and we shall punish them. When we went into Somalia, we disrupted Al-Shabaab's means of livelihood. We took over Kisimayu, we stopped them from uh, extorting money as lady to business people, we stopped them from exporting charcoal, they were getting 30% from every charcoal sold, bag. So they were making a lot of money, and then we moved in and disrupted everything. We dispersed them from their stronghold, they are now roaming all over southern Somalia. As long as we continue doing what we are doing in Somalia, and they still have some semblance of sympathy from people who believe in their cause. As a country, we shall continue being vulnerable as long as those elements still exist. What effect does uh, such an attack have on neighboring countries like um, Uganda, Sudan, Tanzania? And uh, the other question is, do we need um, people from all the way, Israel or American, to come and help us here to investigate? Are we capable? The first question is, if the country continues to be insecure or unsafe, one thing you are going to see is that businesses will never come here. UN officers or senior or serious global trading companies will not choose Nairobi as their headquarters. So it will affect our economy, but neighboring countries may benefit. Two, as we enter into a federation state, there are elements in the East African Community Act that stipulates how security 
and safety of the country must be maintained. If Kenya will not be able to sustain those benchmarks, then it will be very difficult for these other countries to willingly enter into a federation, political federation, because of our insecurity problem. So that is going to be a major issue, I think, within the region, because we must put our acts together as a country if we want to continue leading. To me, that is the effect that we're going to have in the region. Do we need Mossad? Do we need the Americans? Do we need the British to investigate or we are capable? Rather, Kenya is capable of investigating on its own with its intelligence people, the military, and the, the police. Every country has its own capability in terms of what they can do. But always when we are encountering an international security problem, it is always advisable and many countries that think they have a better capacity than you will always be willing to come and assist you. So there is nothing wrong, even with our own capacity at whatever level, for this country to go out and seek for assistance for certain issues of this, of managing insecurity to assist us. It's allowable, it, it is practiced in the international community, and there's nothing wrong for us going out there to seek for assistance from countries that we believe have the capacity than us. And that was a Kenyan expert on terrorism, Captain Simuyu Warunga, talking to our correspondent in Nairobi, James Shimanyula. Now, Swaziland's Elections and Boundaries Commission has announced results from Friday's parliamentary elections that opposition figures and many international observers have called a sham process engineered by the country's king to retain a tight grip on power. The commission has, however, expressed concerns about the low number of women who've been elected to parliament. Out of the 55 members elected during Friday's parliamentary elections, only one woman will be a member of parliament. Political parties were not allowed to participate in the election. To talk more about this, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Buitoko Disake from the Sadek Council of NGOs. Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, Doctor. Good morning, and how are you? Well, very good, thank you. Now, quickly, the elections were widely criticized as just a rubber stamp, so to call it, for King Swati's monarchy to continue enjoying its dominance. What's your view on this? Uh, we must understand that Swaziland is a very unique and different uh, democratic system from South Africa, if any democracy exists there. Uh, it is correct uh, that uh, the elections are systematically against the normal norms, norms uh, that we practice in the region and the continent. Therefore, uh, as you are quite aware, that it was based on individuals rather than the democratic political system that we we have in the world. So to that extent, uh, I think there are major challenges in which the Sazi people will have to go back to the drawing boards reassess and enter into a very serious dialogue as to the future democratic character of the country. Political parties were not allowed to participate in the election. Is that in any way a concern for you? Uh, I believe that constitutionally people should be allowed and have a freedom of expression and association to the extent that the the, uh, ordinary citizens are able to to elect their own elected representatives through the political party system. Uh, it is a concern because what it does, it removes the, the, the chief system to be in total control because the individual who are in, being nominated, because it's not elections in that classical sense that we know elections. It's a nomination process which he... Uh, in many ways, it disadvantages the organized uh, governance system. 
certain quarters have even gone and called it selections. In any case, Doctor, you headed the Study Council of NGOs Observer Mission. Briefly tell us about your experience. Yeah, we, as I have said, we have observed elections in all the countries of the region which have taken place recently and the ones coming into the future. My experience is that there is one thing that uh, Swaziland had that uh, many of our electoral systems legs is the electoral management body. I think uh, it was administratively very efficient. It conducted elections fairly well. Uh, there are, however, a number of cultural constraints. That constraints. That's why you'll only find a woman parliamentary person being elected, which mm-hmm. runs against the grain of the SADC gender protocol. So this in itself, the system in itself, is very exclusionary and discriminatory. Uh, however, you'll finally realize that uh, the outcome may not necessarily be what the king wanted. You'll realize that a number of the ministers have been kicked out in the process. Uh, uh, that demonstrated that the Swazisi demand change. But that change will only come through a democratic system that allows them to choose their own proper representatives. When it comes to democratic reforms, uh, Doctor, Swaziland has been a hot potato in, in, in the SADC region for the longest of times. Do you feel we have what it takes as a region to force Swaziland to do what's right by its people? I, I believe that the, at the heart of it, the Swazi Sea will have to express their, their interest for change. I think at the regional level, Swaziland, they will have to be advised very strongly to, to adapt its system so that it accommodates and, and become in line with the rest of the region. Because for now, for example, our election observation was very difficult because we have to adapt our methodology, which is very difficult to declare the elections free and fair and democratic because we do not have any system that accommodates the Swazi system. I know the uh, African Union mission will provide a more detailed report in due course, but um, I've also been told that its preliminary findings are quite damning. Would you say the conditions were conducive enough for a free, free and, and, and what's called a credible election? Uh, I mean, there have been a number of challenges leading to these elections. Among them, there have been calls for changes, for transformation, and we know that there have been some uh, midnight visits to individuals, which we may regard them as an intimidation. But having said that, the entire system itself doesn't uh, allow itself to be measured in any uh, measurements that we always use for a democratic system. Therefore, uh, in itself, despite what has happened, it falls out of uh, that characterization and the determination of the free democratic and legitimate elections. So it is very difficult to measure it in either of these measures. And just before we let you go, Doctor, you mentioned midnight visits um, in the form of intimidation. Have these cases been formally reported? Uh, some have, some haven't. So I think, uh, like the African Union, we will be drafting our final statement, uh, which will be more detailed in and assessing the entire environment of which such cases will uh, we'll seek it to, to determine and record them more properly. Dr. Buitoko Disake from the Sadek Council of NGOs, thank you so much for your time today.
Thank you very much. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This week, the United Nations will hold the first ever high-level meeting on disability in New York. Just a day before the start of the general debate in the General Assembly, heads of state will discuss how to include disability in the development agenda. At that meeting later today, world leaders are expected to then adopt a document that recognizes disability as an important human rights issue. Now, according to the World Health Organization, that's the WHO, there are one billion people with disabilities, or one in seven people in the world has a disability of sorts. Here's a report by Derek Mbata. According to the World Health Organization, WHO, there are one billion people with disabilities or one in seven people in the world has a disability. Dr. Etienne Krug, director of the WHO's Department of Violence and Injury Prevention and Disability, says people with disabilities often face barriers in their lives. They include stigma and discrimination, as well as lack of access to a number of things, such as buildings. I'm talking about access to assistive devices, as we call them. These are like wheelchairs, hearing aids, etc. Most people who need those in the world don't have access to them yet. I'm talking also to trained health staff who is adequately aware of how to deal with the needs of people with disabilities and better respond to them. The WHO expert says people with disabilities also face the same health challenges as other people. People with disabilities can have high blood pressure, can have cancer, need reproductive health services. They have the same need as anybody else, but often are reduced to a disability. It is not because they can be blind, have a hearing challenge or mobility challenge that they don't have all the other issues that we face. However, as Dr. Crook points out, People with disabilities face difficulties in accessing health services like everybody else. In fact, people with disabilities are two times more likely to find inadequate healthcare provider skills and facilities. They are three times more likely to be denied healthcare and four times more likely to be treated badly in the health system as they experience it. So, the document that world leaders will adopt at their high-level meeting on disabilities on the 23rd of September is expected to address these issues. Alana Officer is coordinator for disability and rehabilitation at WHO. The outcome document concerns all people with disabilities, but the discussions on those days and the recommendations concern all countries. But there is a specific focus because we're working up towards the new development goals and we're trying really hard to push to achieve the MDGs. The discussion will be about how people with disabilities can be included in these last push initiatives towards the MDGs and for the future of development, how should people with disabilities be included in the future international development goals. The MDGs are the Millennium Development Goals to Combat Poverty and Disease that world leaders committed to achieve by the year 2015. Derek Mbata, United Nations.
Good morning. Kenya's military says the fate of hostages inside the Westgate Mall is not clear despite earlier statements that most hostages have been rescued. Judges at the International Criminal Court will today meet to decide if Kenya's deputy president can return home to deal with the armed occupation in Nairobi. And the death toll from an attack in Bono State in Nigeria has risen to at least 142. Details on these and other stories at 9. In the past decade, Ethiopia has managed to slash child mortality rates by half, rising in the global rank from 146 to two, or rather 146 in the year 2000 to 68 in 2012. That's last year. That's according to new report by the UN Children's Fund UNICEF titled "A Promise Renewed," which examines trends in child mortality since 1990. One of the reasons is because Ethiopia has made an effort to deploy health workers to the most remote parts of the country. Now, here's a report by Jocelyn Sambera. The remote village of Okura in southwestern Ethiopia is reaping the benefits of the government's flagship community health extension program. The village, which lies on the Barrow River, used to get cut off during the rainy season because it was accessible only by river transport. But the presence of community health extension workers has changed that. Their job is outreach. They go into the communities to check and treat for the biggest child killers like diarrhea, pneumonia, and malaria. They know what people need, and they know how to get the message across. Ariet Nino, a 22-year-old mother, says they have helped save thousands of lives, especially that of young children under five. The reason why the sons of my father died is because at the time there was no health facility. But now there is a health center, a health post, and a health extension workers. They are more caring, so for each person who goes there, they will get attention, they'll get medicine. The workers also distribute certificates to model homes, meaning households that adhere to good health habits, like washing with soap and using insecticide-treated bed nets. Throughout Ethiopia, there are 38,000 health extension workers doing just the same, paid for by the government, trained, equipped, and supported by UNICEF. Abang Obio is one of them. Before, a lot of under five children used to die because of lack of knowledge about health. Now I need to educate and change this community to reduce the deaths and sickness of children under five years. Scores of people worldwide still have engraved in their minds images of the 1984-1985 famine in Ethiopia. However, the country has made huge strides and is set to reach the Millennium Development Goal 4, that is, to reduce child mortality. This steady but rapid decline in child deaths and smaller, healthier families comes as a surprise to many. Dr. Dereje Belewe is the UNICEF health officer. Ten years ago, we used to see five under five kids per household. Now, after five years, a lot of people are using family planning. I tell you, the attitude of the male is really radical. I, I, I never thought this change would come uh, five years ago. Now I tell you, 
if one work is perseverance, I think you can bring change. Even if, even if we are very poor, we can still bring a radical change. The far-reaching health worker program has been an innovative and successful move by the government. Kesete Sebirhan Adamasu, Ethiopia's Minister of Health, credits the health workers for the turnaround. The key factor is political commitment. With that commitment and with the commitment of the government you know, in putting actual money, real money, beyond setting the policies and so on into the program, has helped to attract more donors to the program and you know for a country to grow and prosper you need healthy people and you need to invest in the health and education of children. With Ethiopia leading the pack, African leaders made a strong commitment earlier this year to prevent child deaths. However, Sub-Saharan Africa still accounts for the majority of child deaths and high rates of preventable child disease. But Ethiopia is proving that affordable and high-impact interventions are possible. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's uh, 8.36 Central African time. You're still listening to uh, Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm your host. My name is Kobe Diwanamani. The United Nations World Tourism Organization has recently signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Japan Association of Travel Agents, JATA. The organization's regional director, Xu Jing, says the agreement was signed on the occasion of JATA's Travel Showcase 2013, and it aims to reinforce the knowledge and positioning of the tourism sector in Asia and in the Pacific. Well, as you are aware, our Secretary General of UNWTO, whose name is Dr. Taleb Refai, he recently made an official visit to Japan. As part of his visit to Japan, he attended the JATA travel show. And probably you also know that JATA as a apex travel fair in the region has been there as a very strong trade activity which not only linked with the industry of Japan but more so with the rest of Asia and the rest of the world because this trade fair has been one of the strongest trade fair especially when it comes to you know attracting Japanese travelers to continue its travel to the rest of the world our Secretary General, when visiting the JATA activities, signed a memorandum of understanding with the Japan Association of Travel Agents, or JATA in short, in an effort as part and parcel of our global partnership with major industry players, such as in the region of Asia and the Pacific, like PATAP, Pacific Asia Travel Association, and we also have partnerships with quite a few other regional players of similar nature, such as the CITM in China, the COTFA in Korea. So it is along that line that we intend to have industry partnership in the region. This MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, how is it going to help in advancing tourism in Asia and the Pacific? 
Right. First of all, this is a partnership agreement, mainly is a political framework of partnership between, on one hand, our UNWTO, which represents mainly the government members, and on the other hand, the industry of Japan. And through the Japan Association of Travel Agents, we will have a more in-depth reach when it comes to collaboration of tourism. Now, this is the typical partnership agreement between the public sector and the private sector in a sense that it's not just a na narrow idea of, you know, engaging the private sector in social responsibility. It is much more than that. What we intend to do is to join hands together and rally the forces of the private sector in mainly upstaging the tourism agenda in a broader social, political, and economic framework. For instance, in our Memorandum of Understanding, we agreed that we shall continue our efforts in linking the tourism with the overall employment situation of the region and linking tourism as a social and economic driver for job creation, for trade, and for development as a whole. And we do see that the private sector has a role to play in the same agenda as most of our government members. What does it mean, the engaging of the private sector's social responsibility? Well, this is, of course, is one element, but I don't think that is the main objective of this uh, collaboration arrangement. Our main objective is to let the industry know that by organizing tours, by sending people to hotels, by sending people to villages, they are contributing not only to the economic development of a particular destination, but more so it is the social factors that they are also contributing, as I mentioned about jobs, about development. As the latest research indicates, that one out of every 11 jobs created on this planet, one is created by the tourism sector. So we should take pride in the process of helping the society in job creation, which is badly needed, especially in some of the developed uh, countries where high unemployment rates has been experienced. How do you say is the advancement of tourism in the area of the Asia and the Pacific? Well, let's look at Japan. Japan, it is needless to say that it has been a very strong traditional tourism market. When I say very strong, it meant mainly as a strong source market for the rest of the region and for the rest of the world. Every year they are sending average 17, 18 million Japanese travelers to all corners of the world. But this is something more conventional. What is new about Japan is that Japan has decided not only to continue its outbound traffic, but also to encourage outsiders to visit Japan as part of the whole tourism cake. And I must say that the government of Japan has done a superb job in attracting people to Japan as inbound tourism, and it has been a double-digit increase over the recent years. And 
a country which is usually known as a country of you know electronic products, a country of manufacturing, has been extremely ambitious and, and bold in putting a new slogan saying that they wanted to build Japan on tourism. And that was uh, Xu Jing, the UN World Tourism Organization's Regional Director for Asia-Pacific on the line from Madrid in Spain, talking to Andile Kalipa. A three-meter-tall statue of uh, former South African President Nelson Mandela now adorns the main entrance to South Africa's embassy in the U.S. capital, Washington, unveiled by a host of dignitaries, among them International Relations Minister Nguana Mashabani, uh, ruling ANC's Chair Balekambete, and leaders from the Free South Africa movement in the United States. Madiba's likeness now stands as a symbol of freedom outside a building once used to justify the apartheid system, shown Bryce Pierce reports from Washington. Whoa! Oh, let's do South African way now. Hundreds waited for hours to share in this moment of unveiling. Madiba, first raised as it was when he proudly walked out of Victor Fester prison, a free man in 1990. The embassy itself now officially opened after an extensive renovation as South Africa's ambassador Ibrahim Rasul explains. Today we also celebrate the exorcism of this building. We exorcise this building where apartheid was justified for so many decades. We exorcise attempts from this building to buy constructive engagement and to invest in it. We exorcise from this building where racism that sought to legitimate itself from the segregation that you too suffered. But in a true South African spirit, our exorcism is not destructive. It is a cleansing. It is a healing. It is the ability to combine the best of the old with the best of the new. Madiba's daughter Zinzi was on hand to represent the Mandela family and graciously addressed what was on everyone's mind. I know that everybody just worries about, you know, how he truly is, what is propaganda, what is being hidden from you all, that this man is a fighter, as you can see from that raised fist over there. Um, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. He's determined to be with us. South Africa's chief diplomat, Maite Nkwana Mashabane, said the statue was a small gesture of thanks to the people of the United States for their support during the country's darkest hours. When we entered the union buildings with other leaders in 1994, the task of eradicating the legacy of apartheid seemed insurmountable. I've had many quotations of the words of our forebearer, the father of our nation, but the one that sustains many of us today is he always said to us, and continue to say wherever he's sitting, it always seems impossible. Until it's tried, and uh, that is 8.46 Central African time. Here is Wisani with your economics update.
Thanks, Khoferi. Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, uh, the site of Saturday's mass shooting where 68 people have reportedly been killed, might as well be a mall in the U.S. or Europe. Kenyan consumers could buy shoes from international brands. When hungry, a shopper could buy a frozen yogurt or sit down for a sushi. The mall highlights uh, Kenya's status as a regional commercial hub and its growing economic fortunes. Kenya's economy has seen steady growth since 2002, averaging between 4 and 5% per year. The country's economy is expected to grow nearly 6% this year, and the Nairobi Stock Exchange is up 21% in the last 12 months. It is not clear how the attack in Nairobi will impact the country's economic prospects. However, a significant percent of Kenya's economy relies on tourists who will be scared of the, to visit the East African country after the terror attacks. West Africa's regional stock market, which has switched to real-time trading this week uh, to lure more foreign investors, may see as many as nine new companies selling shares on the exchange next year. That will probably include three from Côte d'Ivoire and three from Senegal. The boss is based on the Ivorian commercial capital, Abidjan, Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali may each have a listing. Stock markets in Ghana, Kenya, Zambia and Nigeria are among the world's 15 best performers this year, rallying as the IMF says Africa's growth is focused to, to be at 5.1% and will be the best in the world after developing Asia. Senegal Sonata, which offers mobile phone service in four Western African countries, is the biggest company on the boss by market capitalization. And the Somali government has named Yusar Abra as the country's first female central bank governor, replacing Abdul Salam Omar, who resigned after a UN monitoring group accused him of mismanaging the government's money. Abra has spent the past 30 years working for international banks and insurance companies. She will be formally assume the role after a handover. The whole of African nation is rebuilding its economy from the scratch after taking control of rebel-held territory over the past two years, bringing in a measure of stability to the country. Somalia has been wrecked by civil war since uh, the fall of longtime leader Mohamed Siad Barre in 1991. Sudan will host a business conference uh, with German firms to boost economic ties with Europe's largest economy. This is the second such event between Berlin and the isolated African country this year. Sudan is trying to attract more investors to overcome an economic crisis after losing most oil reserves with uh, South Sudan secession in 2011. Most Western firms uh, shunned the country due to a U.S. trade embargo over Sudan's human rights record. The conference is organized by German and Sudanese business groups where, with support from both governments, while uh, foreign investors in Sudan often complain of the massive dollar scarcity and shrinking state infrastructure projects. The Berlin-based association has painted a much brighter picture. The South African government has called on South Africans to support its call for a total ban on alcohol advertising. Preparations are underway for public hearings on the proposed control of marketing of alcohol beverages bill. It is estimated that South Africans drink in excess of 5 billion litres of alcohol a year. According to the World Health Organization, this is among the highest per capita consumption rates in the world. Social Development Minister Batabi Lamini says government believes that alcohol advertising is fueling drinking sprees and it wants all adverts banned. Alcohol consumption in South Africa results in significant morbidity, 
and mortality, increases violence, crime, road traffic crashes, has major consequences for individuals, families and communities. A look at the markets, the dollar at 9.892, the rand at 8.41, Botswana Pulas and 5.23, Zambian Quachas, also trading at 0.622, the British pound, and at 0.732, the euro. Commodities, platinum, $1,430.99, gold, $1,334.31, a fine ounce, and finally, Brent crude oil trading at $109.95 per barrel. And that's your economics news. I'm Tamil Kluza in your sports update. Nigeria's head coach Stephen Keshi has named a list of 23 players to battle for shirts ahead of the first leg of the 2014 FIFA World Cup final elimination feature against Ethiopia's Walia Antelopes in Addis Ababa. The African champions take on the Antelopes at the National Stadium in Addis Ababa on Saturday, the 12th of October. Both teams will clash in the return match at the Eugene Swain Stadium in Calabar on Saturday, the 16th of November. Keshi has called three goalkeepers, seven defenders, seven midfielders and six strikers as the Eagles aim for a win in Addis Ababa to make the second leg in Calabar a much easier session. The Zimbabwe national under-20 football team will regroup on Wednesday to wind up preparations for next weekend's Eduardo Dos Santos Foundation Four Nations Tournament in Luanda in Angola. The team broke camp on Friday morning after training for three days for the tournament that had been initially scheduled for this weekend before it was postponed. With senior national teams required, Zimbabwe will send the Young Warriors to the two-day tournament that involves hosts Angola, Mozambique and either Equatorial Guinea or Zambia. This will be in preparation for December's Kosafa Under-20 Cup to be hosted by Lesotho. 35 players are expected in camp and the team will be trimmed down to 18 before departure. South Africa's Bafana Bafana will play Morocco in an international friendly match next month and the clash with the Atlas Lions will take place on Friday the 11th of October at the Agadir New Stadium in Agadir City, which is southwest of Morocco. It will be an evening match, but the kick-off time is still to be confirmed. The match is one of the two between the two nations with the return leg to be hosted by South Africa in 2014. Coached by Richard Chausi, Morocco is ranked 76 on the FIFA World Rankings and 16 on the African continent. South Africa is 68 on FIFA World Rankings and 12 in Africa. In their last five matches, the two teams have each won two, lost two, and drew the other. And now in netball, the South African Spa National Netball team went down by 49 points to 38 in their first of the three test series against England in Bath yesterday. South Africa, who have not been beaten England in a test for 13 years, took advantage of a sluggish start by the host at the University of Bath to open up a 17-13 nil during the second quarter. Spa protest Lindy Lombard says that they are disappointed about the loss, but there's a room for improvement. Obviously disappointed in uh, the lots of turnover and ball position that we had and that we couldn't capitalize on that. And our aim was to actually 
start running for 60 minutes and again it was only 40 minutes so that two 20 minutes still lack but um, it was great just to play this first game to see where we are what we need to improve on and from you've got basically to work um, of something now the sides play their next match at Wembley Arena in London on Wednesday. And finally with golf, Julian Kane has won the Open d'Italia in Turin in Italy for his second European Tour victory. The Frenchman produced a remarkable closing 67 for 12 under par and a one-stroke win. Nick Dyke reports. Ken has had a notable year, becoming a father for the first time and yet also sidelined for periods with a back problem. It was a notable finale too, given that he suffered a double bogey at the second hole and looked well out of the running as numerous players jockeyed for position. A superb back nine included three birdies in the last four holes to relegate David Higgins and Steve Webster into joint second. And Ken watched as Marcus Fraser, Nicola Colsar and Felipe Aguilar all fell short in the closing stages. Ken had won in Spain last year. He'll make a second appearance at the Volvo Champions as a result of this tasty victory. And that's the end of our spot on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. And that's how we wrap Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Kope Diwanamani, producer Pomoto Ramagadza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send an email. Uh, our address is info at channelafrica.org or send an SMS to plus 2782332509054. Or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at channelafrica1. Taking us now to top of the hour, here's some music. Good morning.